0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message.
1: Philippians chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as those who need you. We need you in so many ways. Um, there's that need for Christ's righteousness, which you've met. There's an ongoing need for renewal, for restoration, for refocus. Lord, that you would change our wants and our desires and the things that we love. Lord, that you would remove any, any hardnesses that have formed over our hearts toward you or toward others. We pray, Lord, that as your word is taught, that you would do that work, that you would take these dry bones and make them live. We pray, Lord, that you'd take stony hearts and make them beat alive for you. Lord, we pray that your spirit would so fill this room that we would see his effects all over. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, as Josh had mentioned, this is Reformation Sunday, and we celebrate Reformation on this particular Sunday because it was on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and he sparked the Reformation. That's theses with a TH, not an F. There was some confusion about that last year, and uh, led to some comedy. He was like, man, 95 of them? That's amazing. And how did he nail them there? And no wonder they were so upset at him. But they are theses. So they are statements of disagreement with the church. They were statements of how the church at that time was misrepresenting the gospel. And you guys might wonder, kind-hearted people as you are, you might wonder why we would celebrate the Protestant Reformation. Of course, it led to the split between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. And, and you might think, like, that's a sad thing. My, my Catholic aunt thinks that's a sad thing. And so when I get very overtly excited about the Reformation. She gets sad. But the Reformation was a good thing because the church at that time was not faithfully preaching the gospel, and I think even they will agree with that. They taught that it was the righteous works of believers that would make us acceptable before God. And they taught this thing that if you lacked enough merit, if you lacked enough righteousness, that the church could sell you some. It's convenient, right? turns out that in their belief system at the time that there were saints, there were people that came before them that had more than enough righteousness to go to heaven. They had extra. Not only could you earn your own way, you could have extra left over. you could have extra merit. And that extra merit was stored in the treasury of the church and the Pope had the keys to that treasury and could sell you righteousness called indulgences. And so if you weren't so sure about yourself and you needed some more righteousness, you could pay for it. If you had relatives that you believed were at this moment burning in purgatory, you could pay for them to have less time there. It's a really sinister thing, right? So I would tell my aunt that the gospel needed to be clearly taught, and there's nothing more important, really, than the church would preach the true gospel. And so if that means a split, that means a split. There's something that needed to happen. And just so you know, the the reformers, Luther and the others, did not mean for there to be a split in the church. They meant for it to be a reformation. (laughs) That's why it's called the Protestant Reformation, not the Protestant church split or the the Protestant see-later guys, you know. It's the Reformation, and the reason why is they wanted to reform it. They wanted the church to repent and return to the true gospel and start preaching that. They were not interested in that, and so that's why the church split. So I don't regret the Reformation at all. People try and pull my heartstrings about it, and like, I have like zero regrets about it. I think it was a wonderful thing. I think it's something we should celebrate. I celebrate it every year, sometimes with tacos, like now. But it is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing time of, of gospel rediscovery and renewal. If you have a chance to read some of the writings of some of the reformers, just amazing as they're scraping off all of this tradition of man and all this works righteousness, and they're scraping all of that off the teachings of the church and exposing the beauty of the gospel to the people for the first time. It's just an amazing thing. You guys remember when you first heard the gospel clearly? It was just an amazing thing. And Just imagine like tens, hundreds of thousands of people at once seeing the gospel for the first time. And it just so happens, guys, that we're in a passage in Philippians that's perfect for a Reformation feast. It actually is a feast of its own. It may be the most succinct, clearest expression of the gospel that Paul, in all Paul's writings. And we need this, guys. We need this because not only does the church need to reform from time to time and rediscover the gospel and get refocused on the truth of the gospel, we personally need that, don't we? We need personal reformations. We need personal times of renewal. Each of us is prone to trust in our own righteousness for acceptance before God. And you can see that in your lack of joy in the Christian life, you know, as you, your sin becomes really visible and, and God's grace becomes so much smaller and you, you, you struggle with, you know, believing that you're accepted before God based on your own righteousness and your joy suffers for that and um, your, your fruitfulness suffers for that. Because, guys, our hearts, the default mode of our hearts is works righteousness, right? It's works righteousness. Just like the default mode of your iPhone is the light one and you really want the dark mode, the default mode of your human heart is towards works righteousness. That's how you come out of the box. That's how you return if you're not careful about it. And so we all need to believe again that we are accepted before God and loved in him based on his righteousness in Jesus, not our own. We need this constant reminder. And you see that in Paul here in verse one. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you, it's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. He's like, I don't mind this bringing up the gospel again. It's my favorite subject, and you need it because you tend to drift from it. He's like, it's no, no burden for me, and it's safe for you. These Philippians were under particular danger because not only was the default mode of their heart to trust in their own righteousness, not the righteousness of Christ, they actually had false teachers coming into town or Paul was at least worried that false teachers were going to come into town, that would actually encourage them to trust in their own righteousness. It's like, man, I don't need help doing that. But there were people that were coming in and encouraging. They were preaching legalism. We can see the warning about it in verse 2. So there's a few points that I have here. They all start with look. It's look out for legalists. It's look, I already tried that. And look at the benefits you get with union with Christ. So first, look out for legalists. Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's like, wow, it. That, that kind of uh, escalated quickly. You know, you guys are like, wow, that seems kind of harsh. But you have to understand what's going on here to feel why Paul feels this way. Imagine Philippi, church has been going eleven years. There's some new believer in the church. He's a Gentile. He's a former idol worshiper. He hears the good news about Jesus. Um, from the church in Philippi. He's told that just by simply trusting in Jesus that he can be righteous before God and be accepted into God's family. And he hears this good news and he loves it and it just changes his whole life. And every day he's trying to learn how to apply that to his life and follow Christ in a whole new way. Now imagine, you know, one of these legalistic false teachers come into town, runs into this guy and's like, you know, it's great that you believe in Jesus, and, uh, but you got to realize you're not really a part of God's family yet. Like, you got a little too ahead of yourself. Paul's message about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, that's true, but he didn't tell you everything. The rest of it is, if you're going to be saved by a Jewish Messiah, and you want to be included into God's family, you're going to have to become a lot more Jewish than you are. You're going to have to get circumcised, you're going to have to keep the, the law of Moses, and then probably say something like, you know, you know God only has Jewish kids, right? You're going to have to get circumcised, you're going to have to start practicing this if you're going to really be a part of the family. So they were preaching what's called legalism. Legalism is faith in Jesus plus works equals salvation, right? It should just be faith in Jesus equals salvation. But it's faith in Jesus plus your own works equals salvation. And imagine that new believer, that poor new believer hearing this and just being robbed of their joy in the gospel. Imagine that. Imagine how they would be buried under a weight of legalism. When Paul hears about that kind of thing, he gets ticked. You can see it in the book of Galatians. You can see it here. You can see it when he says, look out for dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He calls these false teachers dogs. Dogs in the first century in both Jewish culture and Greco-Roman culture, they weren't like the fur children you have. Okay, You're buying them outfits and all this kind of stuff. No, they saw dogs as scavengers, as unclean. Somebody must have liked them because they kept breeding them. But they were out there and they were seen as scavengers and they were seen as unclean. The false teachers would have seen that Gentile believer as a dog, as unclean. Like, you know, we've got to clean up this dog. If we're going to make this person really a child of God, He's going to have to do some things. And Paul says to those Gentile Christians, he says, don't let these people intimidate you. The reality is that because you're in Christ, you're God's kid, and those guys, they're the dogs scavenging outside of God's house, looking for, you know, people to, to lead astray. He calls them evildoers. This would have hurt their feelings. Because these legalists would pride themselves on keeping God's law and teaching others to do it. They were the law people, right? And he's like, nope, you guys are the evildoers. And the reason why is because they're misusing the law. You know, the law was never meant to be a way for you to get right standing before God. The law was meant as a way for you to see your sin and see your need for Jesus. And then the law has another effect later. Once you've come to find righteousness in Christ, the law shows you how to love God and serve him out of gratitude, and and love, and thankfulness, but it was never meant to be a way to earn right standing before God, and so he says, these guys misuse the law, they're the evildoers, that amazing, and then he says this, and this really gets them where it hurts, so to speak, mutilators of the flesh, you know, they taught that Gentiles needed to get circumcised to be truly God's people, Paul says, these guys are just mutilators, just go around mutilating people, you know, like the pagan worshipers that would cut themselves, you know, as part of their worship. They're like, this is an unclean practice, them causing uh, Gentiles to get circumcised. It's important to realize, though, guys, Paul was, had no problem with Jewish believers circumcising their kids out of tradition, circumcising their kids out of custom, as kind of ethnic identity. Had no problem with that. But he got ferocious when false teachers told Gentiles that they needed to do it to be accepted before God. In fact, in Galatians, he says that he wishes those false teachers would just go ahead and go all the way with their circumcision on themselves. That they would circumcise themselves all the way. Think about that new Gentile believer again in Philippi. Think about how evil it is to take away that poor guy's assurance and God's love and, and then to put up this barrier between him and God. As legalism is a way that false teachers get power. As it turns out, if you can break somebody's assurance in the gospel and then they look to you to know how they can get right with God, that gives a false teacher a lot of power. Got to keep coming back to me, and I'll explain whether you kept that law correctly. Got to keep coming back to me, you know, to make sure you're right with God. And it could become big business. And it was big business in the time of the Reformation. Have any of you guys been to see uh, St. Peter's Basilica? Anybody? You've seen St. Peter's? Oh, that's cool. Anybody else seen St. Peter's? Beautiful, right? A lot of that was built in the later stages off indulgence money still beautiful, and still like, like it, you know, but it was, it was built off indulgence money. Think about those poor peasant believers in the 16th century, before the Reformation. The church is hiding the gospel from them, stealing their assurance in Christ, and then selling them worthless righteousness in the form of indulgences. And you put a paywall between them and God. And it's not like these peasants could just like read the Bible for themselves, because that's a part of the deal, Right? You know, it's not like they could do their own research, you know, they're going to Google it and see what, you know, what does the Bible really teach? They can't do that. That's withheld from them as well. So what Paul says in this text is he says to these these Philippians that these false teachers are telling them they need to do this and that, and Paul says, you already have what they're trying to sell you. Take a look at it. He says in verse 3, he says, we, and he's talking about we, him, and the Gentile believers, all believers, he says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying all of us are the true circumcision, meaning all of us are in God's family. We are God's people, right? If you're in Christ, you already have what any false teacher is trying to sell you. And so Paul says, look out for legalists. The next thing he says is, look, I tried that already. You know, these guys are coming with these other laws to add. He says, you know, if you think that law-keeping will somehow make you right with God, let me just tell you something. I already tried it. (laughs) I already did this already. And I was better at it than any of these false teachers. He's like, if you want to play this self-righteousness game, you know, game on. He's like, hold my beer. Take a look at verse, he doesn't say that exactly. In verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's like, I had all these advantages towards righteousness just in my birth even, you know? He said I was circumcised on the right day from the people of Israel. I'm from this kind of exclusive tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of Hebrews. So you're like, I start off with all the right advantages to be righteous the way these guys say you get righteous. And then he goes, and then I built on it like crazy. He said, as to the law as a Pharisee. Pharisees being very strict, you know, order of Jews at that time that really kept the law seriously. They were the conservatives. They were the good guys. They were the guys that really believed the Bible. As to zeal persecutor of the church, this guy wasn't just believing the right things, he was like on fire about it, right? So on fire about it, he'd go out there and, and get rid of heretics. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And when he says blameless here, it doesn't mean he's perfect. It doesn't mean he kept God's law perfectly. What he means is that according to the standards of the time, he met all the demands. Nobody was looking at Paul going like, kind of soft, you know. They all looked at him and said, that guy's exemplary. That guy's doing it. And so Paul's like, you know, I tried that path of building my own righteousness. He goes, I'm not going to lie. I was really good at it. He goes, I was not a Judaism dropout. I was valedictorian. I was better than any of these false teachers who are trying to harass you. And I can tell you, it just doesn't work. He's all, no matter what I did, I did not have enough righteousness to be right before God. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul came to see that no one, including himself, could be righteous before God based on his own works. He came to see that the way that we get saved, the way we get right before God, is by declaring spiritual bankruptcy. That's what he's doing here when he says, All my righteousness, I, I count it as loss. You know? All my righteousness before God was just rubbish. So he uses like a banking term, right? Of I counted it all as loss. He uses a barnyard term, I counted it all as manure. That's what the rubbish means. I was just like, this is not something I can bring to God. Like, here, here's my pile of manure, you know? No. He's like, it it was not a factor in my salvation. I had to declare spiritual bankruptcy. And I want to just tell you guys this morning, because you may have forgotten or maybe you don't know, that you're not going to get saved by a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of your own righteousness, right? You're not going to be right before God by anything that you bring to the table. To really trust in the gospel, to really trust in Christ means to declare spiritual bankruptcy, Okay? total spiritual bankruptcy. We can be a little more specific. It's declaring chapter seven spiritual bankruptcy. There's, there's two types we could think about. One is chapter 13. Chapter 13 bankruptcy is where you still have hope of paying your debts. Just need to reorganize, just need a repayment plan. I had a few bad days. I had a few years I wasn't real proud of. Give me some time, give me some religion. I can get back on track. I can start paying you back. I can start earning my own way. That would be chapter 13 bankruptcy. Chapter 7 bankruptcy is that you have no hope of repaying. You're so badly in debt, you have no hope of ever paying it back. You, you don't need a payment plan. You need to just start over, start fresh, right? The, you have to just declare total bankruptcy. You will never pay your debts. In fact, you will never a- ever make good. You will never start to make any income whatsoever. It's not even that you're going to somehow make good and somehow repay. The gospel is about declaring total spiritual bankruptcy. You will never pay your debt. You see that all your righteousness is lost. It's rubbish. And you're going to from now on rely totally on the righteousness of another. Okay? It's not that you got a blank slate and you start building something. The slate's gone. Like the the surface to build on is gone. It's you're going to rely completely on the righteousness of another. So that's what we see in verse 9. So Paul says, Look out for legalists. And then he says, Look, guys, I tried that already. And now he says, Look what you gain in Christ. Take a look at verse 9. I'm going fast because we need to, okay? All right, verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that I may, by any means possible, attain to the resurrection of the dead. There's three beautiful words in verse 9 that encapsulate the gospel, and I would love for you to remember these. I'd love for you to write them down. If you're the tattooing type, it'd be a great opportunity here, but here's the, here are the words. Found in him. Found in him. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be, you know, saved by Christ? It means to be found in him right, it means to be united to him, this is union with Christ language, to be saved is to be found in him, to be united with him, that every blessing God gives, he gives in Christ, and we need to get in him, okay, we need to be found in him to receive all that he is, and I have a very professional diagram about this, and um, for those of you guys who are just listening, okay, this is where you guys patronize me, like, a, like I'm a preschooler that brought my art, and you're like, no, no, it's good, it's good, it's, it's great, And then, oh, can you just tell me what it is? And I can, okay? So for those of you guys just listening, imagine two bubbles, okay? One bubble is you and your own righteousness, um, which we kind of saw Paul lay his out and what he thought of it in verses 4 through 8. And then there's another bubble. This is Christ and his righteousness. And when you first come to trust in Christ for salvation, what happens is, so here's you, you know, and your righteousness, which we just heard about. Here's Christ in his righteousness. And then if you switch to the next slide, what happens when you come to faith in Jesus is that you get transferred from this bubble to him. You become in him, considered in his righteousness. And notice that that happens by faith, not by works. It's not that you get from your righteousness to being in him by somehow working really hard and pushing your way through or something. All you do is simple faith in Jesus Christ and you find yourself in him, right? Right? In Him, And what's so cool about this is like, remember the bankruptcy part? You have left the whole project of trying to establish your own righteousness before God. You left it. And so you have his perfect righteousness as your own now. Not only is your sin covered, but you're covered with his perfect life. Okay? And this, this is called union with Christ. It's called being found in him. And because you're in him, God treats you as Jesus deserves to be treated. And notice that this union with Christ happens the moment you believe. Happens the moment you believe, and it's something that's by faith alone, okay? The Reformers talked about, like, we're saved by faith alone, that it's, it's faith alone that's the instrument of justification that puts us in Christ. But they said, well, that faith is never alone. We'll see that in a little bit. But the way we get into Christ is by faith alone. And that once we're in Christ, next slide, there's all sorts of benefits that come from being in Christ. And so we're going to look at these. They're all in the text. They all can be made to start with R, which is handy. And uh, so let's look at those. Let's look at these four benefits. First one is righteousness. We already saw in verse 9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. Listen to how clear this language is. Like you have to want to not hear this, okay? Listen to it really clearly. And to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you're in him, you a righteousness is not your own. This is the righteousness that makes you right before God. This is the only thing that on the final day when you stand before God, the reason why you will stand and you will be welcomed into his kingdom is not any of your own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus alone. Uh, Reformers talk about it being an alien righteousness, because it's apart from us, it's outside of us, you didn't do it, you had no part in it. In fact, the time when this righteousness was, was actually formed and made, you didn't even exist yet. This righteousness was earned in Jesus' life on earth. He lived a perfect life on earth, built up this righteousness, which you get to now have as if it's your own history, as if it's your own record. Now God sees you, if you're in Christ, as being perfect because you're found in him. And guys, it's got to be this way. It's got to be his righteousness, not yours. Because here's the deal. If you want to play the, like, self-righteousness game, here's the problem. How much is enough? How many of you guys have tried it? Like Paul, I tried it. I wasn't as good at it as him. I don't think I tried as hard as he did, nor with all the advantages he had. But what you find is there's never enough. And that's why some of you guys, you're Christians, you trust in Christ, but you're entirely miserable. And the reason is because you keep looking at your own righteousness. And if I looked at your righteousness for my assurance, I'd be miserable too, okay? And that's no knock on you. Same with mine. But I look at yours and I'm like, yeah, that won't work. You're right. You're absolutely right. It has to be his righteousness because, guys, otherwise, how much is enough? And, like, who are you the judge to decide how much is enough, And then how would you know? Is it going to turn a color? Is there going to be a pop-up indicator? Like, how will you know when you've reached it? And how will you know if you've lost it? It's just unsustainable. There's no way to do this. And remember, you abandoned your righteousness. And when you start to feel you've repented of sin, but you still feel unworthy and you still feel separate from God, even though you've repented of your sin, remember, you got to remember, didn't you leave this? I thought you abandoned your own righteousness. You're like, whoop, hopping back in here. And you're like, This stinks. You're like, yeah, Paul said it was manure. It does. You'll never feel good and right with God unless you're completely deluded based on your own righteousness. I think I made that clear. So the second you believe, you have his righteousness before any changes happen in your life, which is really cool. The Reformers called this in Latin, simul justice et precator, which means at the same time righteous and sinner. So this person, newly saved, you still right now, A sinner in Christ. So you are at the same time righteous and sinner. You know, though I'm still unrighteous in many ways, I have a righteousness, that's not my own. It's the same me, but I'm in Christ. Isn't that amazing? This is really cool. This is what got people really excited during the Reformation. The other thing you get is relationship. Look at verse 10. That I may know him. Oh, and one thing to notice about this here, just so I want you guys to be real clear on this, there's like a chronology to this too. That once we're in Christ, these are benefits that we get from being in him, right? Okay, cool. Relationship. Get a new relationship. Look at verse 10. That I may know him. Oh, those are beautiful words, right? That one of the benefits of union with Christ isn't just that we get his righteousness, but that we get him. Because we're not just after Jesus' righteousness and the way somebody might marry someone just for the money and doesn't really like them. We want that righteousness because we want God. We want Christ, and His righteousness allows us to have Him. Through union with Christ, the Holy Spirit, gives us a kind of like intimacy with God that the old covenant believers could only long for. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this, No longer shall each one teach his brother and his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me, from the least to the greatest. Jesus put it this way, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. So through your union with Christ, when you came to trust in him, what's happened is there's a secret channel now between you and the Holy Spirit that you can enjoy intimacy with God any now. In the Institutes, Calvin put it this way. Speaking of this connection we have with Christ through the Holy Spirit, he said this, he said that we have a secret irrigation That makes us bud forth and produce the fruit of righteousness. You have a secret irrigation. That guy, you know? Secret irrigation? How awesome is that? That's so cool. You have that. That's the spirit secretly irrigating your heart from Christ. It's amazing. Which leads to the third benefit. Third benefit is real change. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection... And may share his sufferings, become like him in his death. And this power of the resurrection he talks about elsewhere is a power that actually transforms us from within. Through our union with Christ, we have resurrection power that produces real change in us. So our works don't save us. Being united with Christ saves us. We get united with Christ by faith alone, not by works. But then what happens is once we're united to Christ we start to see real change in our life. This is where the works come in. There's transformation that happens from our life. And this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because when you got united to Christ, you got united to the whole Christ. You didn't just get united to his past record. You also got united to his his ongoing life. This is like the John 15 kind of union with Christ. This is a living union. That you were like this dead, dry branch, and he's this living vine, and you were grafted in so that now that you're in Christ, the Spirit so causes Christ's life to like flow into you to turn this dead, dry, brown branch green, and then leaves start to come off, you know, because it's Jesus' life infiltrating you, and then at the end you see all kinds of, um, of fruit coming off, popping all over, Right? And that fruit is Jesus' fruit. That's Jesus' life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's Jesus' fruit. And it's from being united to him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And you can see this connection in verse 10, that it's a deepening relationship with Jesus that causes us to change. We experience him the most as we lean upon him for him to change us. So the more that you'll actually engage in a fight against sin and trust in Christ, trust in the Spirit to help you, the more you're actually going to know him. He says, to know him in the power of his resurrection. Those go together. Like, the more we're actually drawing strength from him, drawing help from him to be transformed, the more we're going to experience him. And we also experience him more in suffering, right? There's a link here. It's in, the, it's in the furnace of sanctification and suffering that Christ is known most deeply, right? You guys notice that? You guys notice that it's in the, it's in the furnace of sanctification and it's in the furnace of suffering that you meet Christ the most. You know, like Daniel's friends, When they're in the fiery furnace, they notice someone else is in there with them. Who is that? That was Christ himself walking amongst them, with them. Guys, the the furnace is where the fellowship is, you know? The furnace of sanctification and suffering. And that's until we receive the final benefit, and the final benefit is right here, resurrection. Resurrection, look at verse 11. And by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Guys, this is really cool, and we've talked about it a lot here, so I'm going to be pretty brief, but our final state is to live in a resurrected, perfect earth in resurrected, perfect bodies. That's our final state. It's the resurrection. Our struggles with sin will be over. You know, the gospel takes away the penalty of our sin. Right now, by the power of the Spirit, he's taking away the power of sin in your life, and then when we get the resurrection, we're going to, it's going to be the presence of sin gone penalty, power, and then the presence of sin. Anybody want the presence of sin gone? Anybody tired? Anybody weary from this? Anybody like ready to just have all right affections? To be able like trust your heart? You know, like right now it's the meme, right? Trust your heart, follow your heart. And we're like, that's a disaster. That's a good way to like make your life a total disaster. You can guarantee your spouse doesn't want you following your heart, right? Nor do your kids, nor do any of us. But what will be cool in the resurrection is that we'll be able to follow our heart you know like all of our affections all of our desires all of our wants will be right you know to perfectly love those around us and you know what's better is we're going to see his face we're going to see the face of christ we're going to see the face of the one who loved us so much that he took our place on the cross for our sins jesus christ the only person that was ever perfectly righteous the only one who ever earned enough merit for his own way to heaven and had some left over, a lot left over, right? And yet he gave himself to die in our place as sinners in our place. He gave himself to die on the cross to be treated as the dog, to be treated as the evildoer, to have his flesh mutilated with whip and thorn and nail and spear for you until all the wrath of God was satisfied, all your sin was swallowed up, And now he's ascended and he's risen. And I have the good news for you guys who are in Christ that your sins are no more. Your righteousness is in him. Go in peace. Go with him. Live with him in his resurrection life. Happy Reformation Day. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that you, 500 years ago, uh, caused a very special time to happen of gospel renewal. We're thankful because we are inheritors of that. We are thankful for the church handing down the gospel faithfully. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who would hand down the gospel faithfully you know, to however many generations are to come. We pray, Lord, that we would do our part in handing it down to the lost in evangelism, handing it down to one another and to our kids and parenting, handing it down to our friends. We just thank you. We thank you for this gift of Christ. We thank you that when we got Christ, we got the whole Christ. Sins forgiven. New life given. Resurrection to look forward to. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.